Hey everyone, you're listening to Superwomen. We had an incredible book launch event. It was so incredible. I wanted to take entire segments that we had and turn them into podcasts so that you could get the wisdom of these fierce, intelligent, incredibly wonderful women. I am so excited to bring you my talk with the fierce and wonderful and amazing Swan Sit. I sat down with Swan to talk about my new book, Fearless, discussing my career and all of the events that led to this latest adventure, becoming an author. I hope you enjoy this episode and make sure you pick up a copy of Fearless wherever books are sold. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. I'm Swan Sit, and I'm here to interview the amazing Rebecca Minkoff about her new book, Fearless. I'm lucky to have called Rebecca a friend for a few years and watched her career astronomically rise. I was in the corporate world for most of my life. My last role was the global head of digital marketing at Nike, but now I sit on the boards of a few public companies, advise SPACs and VCs, own an energy drink company with some TikTokers, and I'm a creator myself with three and a half million followers on Clubhouse. I'm so excited to interview Rebecca today. I am in my Archie Rebecca Minkoff dress, feeling fierce and fearless. And we're so excited to dive into Rebecca's history and her career and how it's culminated in this incredible book. Rebecca, so good to see you today. Thank you so much, Swan. As someone that I've admired for so long and looked up to, it is truly an honor to have you here sharing this like really exciting moment where my baby's being born, my fourth child. <laughs> well, I can only imagine writing a book is probably just as hard, if not harder in some ways. And I can't wait to dig into the elements of the book, but also provide the audience some context and texture around it because your experiences in your career are so amazing. So if that's okay, I'd love to dive in and dig into actually the early years because I think that's where all of this started. When I look at your success today, I sometimes forget the struggles you had in the early years, right? You told me about having $8 and sleeping on a mattress you propped up on milk crates in the West Village. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> Why did you stay in New York when you had every reason to listen to your mom to go home? I have to, I have to assume that that grit came from experiences like that. You know, growing up, I had to work for anything that I wanted. It was a mantra in our house that if you want it, how are you going to earn it? Um, there was a ledger in the kitchen on this top shelf that would be pulled down, like, let's see how much money you've earned. And so for me, you know, I was willing to put up with the mattress on milk crates. I could have just had the mattress on the floor, but I needed the extra storage underneath it. Um, <laughs> but I think that I said, you know what, I want something and I want it bad enough that I'll have to do the hard work. And, it, and you know, you read about these New York stories and it's very rare that someone comes with a pile of money and makes it. Um, more often than not, it's, you know, the Ralph Lorenz of the world who are selling ties door to door, you know, or, or my story living in a, in a, in a one in a closet, essentially, in the West Village and, and really putting in that hard work and that grit to make it. And I think when you do experience success, it makes it that much sweeter because you're like, you know what, I worked my you know what off for this. Yeah. Well, and it's not just grit, though. I think some of that came from your experiences there but it's the mix of that with ingenuity, right? One story that really stuck out to me is when your friend Jenna asked you to design a handbag for her TV show. You said yes, even though you didn't even make handbags. I mean, that's crazy. What started as a brand defining opportunity turned though into heartbreaking defeat and then became your breakout moment in a span of two weeks. 
Tell us about that roller coaster, because I think I've heard you say that our greatest opportunities are always unpredictable. You know, she was the one who kind of kick-started my career. She wore my I Love New York shirt shortly after 9-11. I'd sent it to her pre-9-11. She wore it on Jay Leno. It was everywhere. Again, pre-social media, so magazines actually sold product. Um, and she came back to me a couple of years later when I had a very small clothing line. I was struggling financially. I couldn't see how this suddenly I'd become a well-known designer, but I was too stubborn and not willing to give up. And she said, do design handbags. I have a film I'm going to be doing, and it's really an important part of the character to have this bag. And I just lied. I said, yeah, I do. I do know. I, I make bags. Um, but I knew that even though I didn't make bags, I knew where to get a bag made because I was already dealing with leather vendors for my apparel. And I just went straight to the source. I said, where do I get a bag made in New York City? And they gave me four factories. And I said, you know, let me go to all of them. And when one, one of them came out and he was currently making the hottest designer's bag of the moment, I was like, oh, he can make my bag. I don't know what this bag is going to look like, but he can make it. So I quickly sketched something up. Um, I went to Home Depot to get the hardware because it's not like you could go online in those days uh, and order things. And uh, I had a two-week deadline. And on the last and final day, I overnighted it. And it got to set two hours late and missed the filming. The gut-wrenching assistant called me and said, where's the bag? It's not here. We've started filming. And to me, that was the last money that I had to my name. And I was like, cool. I just bought myself my first designer bag. There, I, there we go. Got what I got, you know, something fancy. Um, and so what happened was I carried around the sample because I had made two and enough women stopped me that I was like, there's something magical about this bag. Like people want to know who it is and how to get it. And so maybe I, maybe I sell this bag I mean, recoup my money. That was my initial thought. I didn't think it was going to be this hit. Um, but that was the failure that really turned into opportunity. Rebecca, that's brilliant because your bags are so iconic for the hardware. And now I'm hearing the original hardware was from Home Depot. Like that's crazy. <laughs> well, here's what's crazier is I didn't know where to get hardware. And again, you couldn't just go online today. And we were making everything in the U.S. And there are no hardware suppliers like that in the U.S. Yep. And so I would literally, I had a boyfriend in Philadelphia. I would like go visit him, clean out all the Home Depots. Every time I went to visit my parents in Florida, I'd come home with like a suitcase full of hardware. Like it was, that was all the original hardware was from Home Depot in the beginning. Wow. Home Depot gets fine credits, fine print credits. <laughs> Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your work ethic, because that's something that I admire you so much for, and I think it would really help this audience. The book Fearless reflects the highs and lows of entrepreneurship, particularly big milestones that felt like make it moments, but were actually growing pains in disguise. Uh, one example is when you landed an opportunity to have the morning after bag in one of NYC's most popular showrooms. Despite it being an it bag, the owner gave you critical feedback on every single detail. How did stepping into that moment teach you about embracing change and up-leveling? So I walked into this showroom with like this ego because I had a knit bag, I had great press, I had some great stores, my first showroom. And again, this was before direct consumer. So the only way to get to your consumer was through selling to a boutique or wholesale. They were basically um, closing down their showroom and I had a month to find a new one. And so I walked in like, she's going to be lucky to have me. And I, her office was the fanciest thing I'd ever seen, her perfectly lacquered nails. And she just 
picked apart the bag. She's like, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and you got to fix this. And, you know, one could have left there completely deflated, feeling like a failure. I was definitely shaking in the bathroom before I left. And I said, you know what? If I want to be in this for the long haul, I have to take this criticism, which is hard to stomach, but it's not mean spirited. It's meant to help me and I got to change it. And she gave me a week because she needs three weeks to sort of get familiar with the line and make sure everything's ready. And so I had a week to go to my factory, fix everything, make all the changes. And when I called her, I said, I'm ready to come back. She's like, oh, I didn't think you'd be back. And I think we underestimate sometimes, you know, we have our phones at our fingertips. You can click almost anything and a button and you get it. And then you have these wonderful, creative, talented people go out into their careers and think that it's going to be like pushing a button. And it really takes that grit, that hard work, the burning the midnight oil, at least, you know, for me that I've seen and many entrepreneurs, I'm sure you can attest to that, like you got to work your butt off to become successful. Um, and sometimes you got to work your butt off to like barely be successful. And so I think that that was a moment for me where I said, this is just the beginning of hard work. This is just the beginning of making sure that everything I do is professional and 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 well presented as, as I'm selling things to consumers and they have, they have opinions. That takes an incredible amount of drive and optimism though. And I really appreciate that. There was another example in there too, where um, your clothing line, right? It's an example of going with the momentum that you started having, but you actually made the tough choice to shut that down when the bag took off. And then a decade later, you unexpectedly relaunched it because of a Laguna Beach rerun, I think. <laughs> Tell us about that. Tell us about that story and any advice you have about going with momentum, because I think the optimism that you just talked about is what I love about entrepreneurs, but sometimes they're blinders. And so the ability to read and go with momentum is just as important. So help us understand that. So one of the things I wanted to make sure occurred in the book that it wasn't just this book of like, do it, do it, do it, you can do it. And then someone's like, it's failing, it's not working. And I've tried everything. And then I'm like, still do it. Um, because sometimes things frankly don't work or are meant to be pivoted. You know, people use that word all the time instead of failure. And I think if I was being honest with myself, I had a $250,000 a year clothing line. It was nice. People liked it but it wasn't growing at a clip that was sustainable or that you could live off of. Maybe $250,000 sounds like a lot to a lot of people, but usually at the end of the day, your net profit's 10% and no one can live in New York City for $25,000. I did it for many years, but it's really hard. And so when the bag hit, it created, you know, it hit in a zeitgeist in a moment where sex in the city was the thing. It was called the morning after bag, make up the story, PG-13 are rated and it was like this milestone moment for women, you know, fill in the blank to, I got your bag when I graduated, got my first job, got a raise, quit my job, divorced my husband, all these sort of first moments. And you could feel that for once, it wasn't just me pushing my goal. It was other people like, I love this bag. Where can I get it? How can I help you? And so I said, you know what? I love clothing. It's what I've spent my life doing. And, you know, my brother had to be like, hang on, let's just put it on pause. And then when we start it, when we have the funds to do it, because it, it's cost a lot of money to have an apparel business. So it was gone for four years and that was fine. We really focused on the brand and built up the business. And then this rerun of Laguna Beach, or I think it was the Hills, was showing on MTV and all these boutiques were like, you started clothing? When did you have clothing? Why didn't you sell it to me? 
And we had all these crazy phone calls and we were like, maybe we should restart it and tell them it's coming in a couple months. So that was sort of the flippant way we relaunched clothing. But, um, you know, I think you have to know when to follow your momentum and then know when to pump the brakes on other things. And I, and I think if you look at huge examples, Instagram started as a, what, a travel photo, you know, sharing your travel photos. So they went with the momentum. People wanted to show their avocado toast or whatever it is they want to do. You know, TikTok was musically and people lip syncing to videos. So I think you have these huge companies that said, all right, the momentum is here. Let's go with it. Um, and if we have to sort of change what our original purpose is, that's okay. I love that you're honest about that because from an outside, I mean, this is an empire. Your brand is a household name and everything looks so perfectly planned and executed from the outside. So I appreciate when entrepreneurs are vulnerable and tell people, well, that kind of went away for a while or that was an accident because that's, I mean, we always talk about entrepreneurship. People think it looks like this, but it looks like this, right? And so those moments, I think, give people hope when it's when the going gets tough, you know? Yeah, I think it's important to be real because you have so many like bright-eyed people who are like, I want to be a designer. And then they're like, oh, what happens? Your store bounced a check or the leather's not going to arrive on time or, you know, your hardware got mixed up with Kate Spade's hardware. And now you have bags that are like hybrid bags, like some of the stuff you can't make up. And so you have to be like, you got to know about the struggles that can happen. Oh my God, I can't even imagine the horror when those things happen because you're looking at your baby, this piece you created that did not come out the way you designed. And then it's too late. It's on there, right? Oh, it's on there. And the the world is talking about it. And you're like, cool, I got a nickname. It's called Quebeca Spankoff, which is the hybrid of Kate Spade and Rebecca Minkoff. And no oh, one wait. wants that. Wait, actually tell me about that because I think you used to work crazy hours, right? Like I heard like 168 hour work weeks. I'm like trying to do math to be like how many hours are actually in a week, but. Well, okay, I probably worked whatever 16 times seven is. Okay. That's I a lot, I'm not good at math anymore, but that's a ton of hours. But I think when Quebeca spank off happened, you're just like, I have to work a lot, but I'm not going to cut corners. Like we have to figure out how to make this balance. Like, tell me about that experience. Cause I think a lot of people remember that, that term, but not necessarily the story behind it. Oh, it's a good story. So, um, we were using our first overseas factory and the chapter in this book really talks about not taking shortcuts. Um, and we didn't have the money to afford quality control. And rather than me saying, Oh, I'll do quality control. I said, well, it's an overseas factory. They make for Kate Spade and Michael Kors. Like they know what they're doing, except these incredible people speak Chinese and the hardware was in English and it was in the same room. And so they just put Kate Spade hardware and Rebecca Minkoff hardware on the bags. And because we didn't check anything, shipped them out. It took my customers laughing about it on a forum called the Purse Forum, which I love these women. Um, and I was like, what's Quebeca spank off? And I clicked into the thread and I was like, horrified. Horrified is an understatement. I called the head of the factory crying. Like, what have you done to me? I now have to call the head of Saks, of Bloomingdale's, of Nordstrom, the buyers and be like, I'm so sorry. There's bags on the floor with mixed hardware. And I just was like, oh god this is bad this is really bad and so i was like how do i turn this into a positive story okay i'll make it like willy wonka like you find that bag and then i'll send you a new one free um so you get two bags you know if you, you know if you find the bag i'll send you a new one so we had all these women like searching high and low for the bags telling us what locations 
And guess what happened? They sent the same messed up hardware. So we sent out round two. So that was a dark day. And those are days that sometimes, you know, your business is in a fragile place. You're just starting out. You don't know if the store is going to drop you or send everything back. You're like, you're really looking at, am I going to go out of business for this? Because all my bags had it. Um, we located them all. We fixed it. It took a couple months. But those are those harrowing moments where you just want to go into a. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Corn cry. You know, I laugh at it now because it sounds ludicrous, but I can't even imagine how scary that is when your inventory is limited and the retailers are your only way to sell. So those relationships are so important, but within it, it's, it's actually a few different things. Like it's not, I think it's about not cutting corners, like you said, but the fact that you turn that into an opportunity for like a social media hunt where people were told to go find the bags, that's pretty cool. And that's pretty fast way to pivot. Right. And I mean, you know, I know this is years ago, but that's what retailers are still trying to figure out how to do to be authentic and to be relevant and present with consumers. I mean, it's everyone's, you know, everyone's hoping that someone has a magical answer. Like, what is the solution to retail and how do we reinvent? And I think, you know, things are evolving so quickly. I think everyone's excited to finally get out and shop, right, without their masks on and touch and feel clothing. And that alone is going to, old is going to feel very exciting as we look to digital to sort of make some experiences that we're now really used to with e-commerce a lot smoother. There's also a really salient theme in the book about short-term losses and long-term gains. And I think you were toasting the holidays with your retail partners way back in 2008, and they just like casually dropped a bomb and said, if your price is over 500, we're not renewing your contract. If you're growing a luxury brand, of course you want to keep growing and aspiring and possibly taking prices up. And they just basically dropped a bomb on you unexpectedly and said, we won't renew your contract. So you actually cut your prices and didn't make money for three months. What's your perspective of the short term versus the long term? And how do you think about assessing those future opportunities? So it wasn't that we didn't only make money for three months. What happened is they basically said the recession is here. No one is spending $500 on a bag. It's just not going to happen. If, you, if people go back to 2008, 2009, like everything at these department stores was 80 off. Like they couldn't get rid of merchandise fast enough and they knew it was only going to get worse. So they said, you know, take nothing out of the bag, same leather, same construction, lower your prices by a couple hundred bucks. And we've had to basically say, okay, we won't make margin for a while. We're going to take the Wrigley's model, uh, make a lot and then go negotiate later. And that's a huge risk for a company to take. But we said that it's our only way. It's the only way we're going to be able to to make it and stick around. And so we cut our prices. And I thought immediately we'll see a result. She'll notice. And it took three long months, three gray hair inducing, although died, inducing long months where I was like, she didn't notice. Now we have no cushion and no padding. Like, what did we just do? And then for whatever reason, took her three months and she was like, oh damn, Rebecca Minkoff is now really affordable. I can have something, you know, it's an upgrade from fast fashion. It's not gonna make it so I can't pay rent or eat and I can get a high quality accessible luxury handbag. 
And then we started to grow and we grew over the next several years, 548%. We were able to go back to our factories and say, with this kind of volume, we want, you know, a price cut. And so you really have to hold on sometimes to the long-term goal. You really have to be cognizant that if you, if you take some of these risks, they might not pan out, but I think if you look, okay, over the next three years, how could we make this happen? Then eventually it'll pay itself back. And so because of that, we took market share, we stuck around. A lot of my competitors went out of business and are no longer even brands. And so I think if we hadn't done that, that's probably where we would have ended up. So many lessons to take from that. I want to jump actually to talking about your see by wear fashion show. Because when I heard about that, I was like, I want to go work for Rebecca. What an amazing innovation. So talk to people a little bit about being some of the first in the entire industry to start making your fashion accessible in the digital channels. Yeah. So, you know, fashion shows used to be closed to insiders only, buyers and editors showing the season ahead so they could review it and then buyers could buy it. And it would give the designer enough production time to make it. Once social media, you know, happened, you know, for the consumer to get a, a peek at everything that was available, for fast fashion to knock it all off and get it on the floors cheaper and quicker than the designer, basically cut the knees out of the actual designers, not these, you know, cheap fast fashion places. But also, it wasn't special anymore nine months later. You've seen it everywhere. Do you really want it at that point? Do you have to have the, the dress that you've seen on now 10 celebrities and all the magazines and on Instagram and walking? And so we just felt that for these two pinnacle points every year, you know, February and September, you're putting a ton of money into that production. Why not have it be something that's instantly gratifying? Why not have it be something that people can be like, oh, love the dress, saw it today, it's at my doorstep tomorrow. And so we worked really hard to change it and it wasn't like, oh, you just change it. It took a lot of work figuring out our supply chain and how we do business and when our orders place and all that to take a stand. And, you know, we were the first to announce it. We were followed by Tommy Hilfiger and then Burberry. And so we were, we were really excited that these big, huge companies were on board. A lot of brands are still not on board, but we know that for us, the best thing we can do is give her something today and have it shipped to her tomorrow. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, the work you did with those fashion shows, with the smart mirrors in your stores, you brought digital innovation to the fashion industry. So thank you for that. Well, you have to thank my brother. He gets the credit for all that. He fearlessly, uh, you know, made that his passion and mission. I might have told him what a woman wants, but he was definitely the brains behind that. Well, you guys are a really complimentary power duo, so that's really smart, too. I want to make sure we touch on Female Founder Collective, because obviously the brand Rebecca Minkoff has done so well over the years, and I loved hearing these stories of being in the trenches. But you've also added other things to your plate. Talk to us about Female Founder Collective. So in the book, I actually talk about the idea of how everybody can give back, no matter where they are in life, and how adding that give back mindset can actually enrich your life and put out so much more positive um, than sometimes your main focus. You know, my main focus and day job every day is, of course, designing for a modern woman. But if I'm designing for a modern woman who isn't making the same amount of money as, a, as her cohort or a man, or if I'm designing for a modern woman and she's hitting a glass ceiling uh, or she doesn't have the tools to succeed, then I'm not actually totally supporting her. 
Um, I felt incredibly lonely as a founder. You know, I can't go talk to my employees about some of the nightmares that occur every day, but I can talk to other founders. They've been there and done that. And so I set out to create a, a community first and foremost, of founders. I wanted to create a recognizable seal so that you know when you're supporting a woman. Um, and then, and, and lastly, you know, my co-founder really took this angle uh, when she joined Allison Wyatt and she was like, we need to have education. You know, we need to bridge the gap where founders can teach founders. You know, you have far more experience as the founder of your company than a teacher in a college might have about working in a company. Um, and so I think it was key that we say, okay, let's get the best and the brightest and then have them pass it on. And so for me, you know, every woman I dress beautifully now has the access to find ways to get capital, to have a community of founders for how do you do this, you know? And so I think my goal is that we do get to say in several years, you know, the wage gap did go up or of the 2000 businesses that are started every day, they stuck around. They didn't go out of business because they didn't have the know-how. And so, you know, my goal is as, as we see a million women out of work last December, how about a million women started their own companies and they all succeeded? That would be a great thing to do. And so that's the goal in the Female Founder Collective. So if you are a woman-owned business, please join us. It's pretty exciting over there. Well, thanks for that incredible gift to that community. And honestly, I meet members all the time that talk about such value and camaraderie that come from that group. So thank you for that. I want to close with one last question, the big one about defining success. So you talk in the book about no such thing as making it. It's just about good to keep going. And that's how you define success. And, you know, we didn't dig into this as much, but there's also the thought of imposter syndrome that a lot of entrepreneurs face. Talk to us a little bit about that definition of success and why that might be helpful for some of the entrepreneurs listening. I think when people look at success, they either look at fame or money in their bank account, as that is what defines success. And those are nice things to have, don't get me wrong. But I think that sometimes when you are just putting one foot in front of the other every day and getting back up, no matter how terrible it's been, when you wanna run, that is success. And an, an extreme example is when our business was decimated last year by 70%, the easy thing would have been to be like, all right, we quit. This is going to be hard. It's going to take a lot of work to stay in business. Man, it's going to be a hard year. And I don't know if I can commit to that and be a mom and, you know, all these things. Right. And we said, screw it. We're going to keep going. We owe it to ourselves the last, you know, 15 years. We owe it to our employees. We owe it to the women who love this brand. And so we're here today, a success because we kept going. And so I think, you know, there's going to be invitations for you to fail every day. And the more you don't give in to that invitation, you will be successful. It might not be, again, it's not the fame and the money in your bank account for everybody that all, no, not everyone gets to, you know, necessarily, we're not all ever going to be billionaires or the Jeff Bezos of the world. Right. But you're going to be successful in that you stuck through it. You kept going and you worked your butt off and, and you got somewhere. I love that you define it as invitations to fail because that mentality shift is so important. Assuming that something's happened to you as a victim and you can do nothing about it, or it's an invitation to step into the failure or do something about it. So that's such a salient image that I want to make sure we really impress on our listeners. 
Rebecca, this has been amazing. I've been so in love with this book, Fearless. It has so many lessons, actually in the entrepreneurial world, but in the corporate world, because that's where I spent my career. So I think after the year I and we all have had, it was such a refreshing breather to have such inspiration from you. So thank you for the candor and the vulnerability and the inspiration. It's an honor to do this with you. And I can't wait to see what comes next. Thank you so much, Swan, for interviewing me and um, for celebrating with me today. And thanks everyone who tuned in. I hope you got something incredible from this event.